You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The Ontological Argument for the Existence of God by Robert Mayhew. Now, it's standard procedure to begin a talk by motivating one's audience. But I found that problematic in this case. What could possibly motivate you to come to a lecture on something called the ontological argument for the existence of God? Aside from a lack of alternatives (laughs) and nothing to do till the talent show. But in the end, I reasoned that motivating you was not necessary. After all, Ocon audiences are the best audiences. In fact, I'm going under the assumption that you are the perfect audience, the audience than which none greater can be thought. (laughs) And on that assumption, I asked myself, which audience is more perfect, the kind that needs a motivation or the kind that does not? Clearly, as need implies a lack of perfection, a lack, The audience that needs no motivation, all things being equal, is the perfect audience, the one that which none greater can be thought. Hence, I don't need to motivate you. Now, if you find this line of reasoning impressive, then I was wrong and you are not the perfect audience um, or audience member. But you are in the right place as you need this lecture. And if you don't find this line of reasoning impressive, then we are simpatico, and you hopefully will find out a bit more about why you are right not to be impressed by this line of reasoning, and that you will hopefully find this lecture a useful exercise in what Ayn Rand called philosophical detection. Now, there are three main arguments for the existence of God. All the other ones Uh, don't matter, the minor arguments like the the argument from morality, the argument from common consent. Now, two of the main arguments are the kind that normal people come up with or accept as reasons or rationalizations for their belief uh, in God. But one of the three is an argument that only a philosopher could come up with or find plausible, and a minority of philosophers at that And yet this argument persists in having its defenders and being the object of debate and discussion and fascination. Now, the two normal people arguments are the cosmological argument and the teleological arguments for the existence of God. The latter is also known as the argument from design. Now, I covered the cosmological argument in some detail a couple of years ago in my lecture, Ayn Rand's Intransigent Atheism, and I'd like to do something on the teleological argument at an Ocon one day. But today, my topic is the argument that only a philosopher could love. What has come to be called the ontological argument. It was given that label, uh, which stuck, by Immanuel Kant. Uh, The term ontology, the Greek word toon, or onta, it's being, Uh, An ontology is a term used for what is often considered the branch of philosophy, sorry, the branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being. I find this a dubious uh, um, distinction, but in any case, the name ontological won't concern us uh, any longer, but you'll at least see the logic behind the name given how often the word being comes up. Now, here's a history of the ontological argument in a single sentence that Kant would be proud of. 
It was invented by the monk Anselm in the 11th century, immediately criticized by his contemporary and fellow monk, Gaunalo, fell into disfavor after the objections leveled against it by Thomas Aquinas, resurrected by Descartes, whose argument received objections from some of his contemporaries, approved of by sundry early modern philosophers like Leibniz and Spinoza, thought by many to have received its death blow at the hands of Immanuel Kant, though it nevertheless continued to find its defenders, for example, Hegel, who wins the prize for the most incomprehensible version of it or comments on it, I'm not sure which, as well as the mathematician Kurt Gödel and the arch-rationalist defender of Christianity, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. That's it. Now, Plantinga is still alive. I just checked. Uh, so this is a pretty, uh, this is uh, up-to-date history. He's 90. Now, on the handout, I've provided outlines of two versions of the argument, Anselm's and Descartes, and I mean, you can find multiple variations of, of the versions of Anselm's. I'm going to go through Anselm's version pretty swiftly before turning to two medieval objections to it, Gaunalo's and Aquinas's, and then I'll look briefly at Kant's famous objection. But in each case, I'm going to follow it up with the, the object, follow up the objection with more fundamental objections that these three missed. Um, incidentally, I don't think that any of the later versions fare any better than Anselm's, though Descartes at least is easier to follow. So I, I included a bit, since I had space on my handout, on girdles and, and planting as, but it's all just non-starters there. Okay, so you can follow along on the handout as I go through the argument. Premise one, we, we have an idea of God, that is the being than which none greater can be thought. And you can see on the handout, I included some uh, Anselm at the bottom there. He says, quote, uh, but surely when this same fool, the fool from Psalms 14, the fool who's, uh, 14, one, the, the, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. But surely when this same fool hears what I am speaking about, something than which nothing greater can be thought, he understands what he hears and what he understands exists in the understanding, unquote. Now in Descartes' version, in Descartes version God is the supremely perfect being, one that lacks no perfection. Now, when Anselm says we, he includes the person who denies the existence of God. If an atheist is someone who does not believe in God, then he must know what he means by God to reject its existence, right? Okay, that's premise one. Two, a being that exists solely in thought is not as good as a being that exists in thought and exists in reality. Essay in re. So, on this view, existence is a greater-making quality. It's better to have it than to not have it. In honor of the publication this year of Dr. Peikoff's, or this year, this week, right, of Dr. Peikoff's The Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume, I want to uh, quote his explanation of this premise in that course. Incidentally, it was the first course I ever took on objectivism in the basement of the Crawfords in 1982. But here it is. Now, no one has lighters anymore, so let's pretend this phone is a lighter. Otherwise, here's Dr. Peikoff explaining this premise of the ontological argument. Quote, for instance, I hold up two lighters, the one in my right hand and the one in my left hand. These two lighters are identical in every uh, respect. 
They are both made of the same metal. They have the same shape. They light cigarettes the same. Everything is the same. There's only one difference. The one in my right hand exists, and the one in my left does not. Which is the better lighter? It's obvious, unquote. And that obvious is important because it's always presented that way. It's just obvious. Well, it follows from these two premises, therefore three, if God existed solely in thought, then he, the being than which none greater can be thought, would be a being than which something greater can be thought, which is absurd. Therefore, God exists in reality as well as in thought. Go fleeing from the room. I'm assuming you accept the argument and you want to get the hell out of here. Uh, Now, Anselm's aim in presenting this argument was not merely to prove the existence of God, but to prove that Psalm 14.1 is correct. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is, the atheist is not merely mistaken, he is a fool, for he denies the self-evident. Denying that God exists is like thinking there might be a married bachelor or a square with three sides. Or as Descartes puts it, thinking that God doesn't exist is like separating the idea of God and the idea of existence is like thinking you can separate the idea of a valley from the idea of a mountain or triangularity and three-sidedness or something. In fact, Aquinas does not, Thomas Aquinas does not classify Anselm's argument uh, as an argument for the existence of God. Rather, he treats it as an argument for God's existence being self-evident, a view he rejects. Now, when I presented uh, this argument to my introduction to philosophy class this past semester, I asked them what they thought. Through a sea of befuddled faces, one hand in the back row was raised, and she was perhaps the, the best student in the class. And she said, it's clever, but there's something definitely wrong with it. I don't know what, but it is not convincing. And this is a good response. This is the, it's it's um, a response that I had um, when I first encountered this undergraduate argument. The BS detector went up pretty clearly, but I, I didn't quite, I couldn't pinpoint what was wrong with it. And in a way, it's the stance of the very first critic of Anselm's argument, uh, Gaunelow, who's a monk as well. In one sense, it's, it's like his, because he presented a reductio ad absurdum uh, of the argument, but without pinpointing where it goes wrong, without seeing what is wrong with it, really. And in a way, Aside from the argument, he thought Anselm was absolutely brilliant. So what I want to do next is present Gaunelow's objection to Anselm and then draw out its deeper implications. Now, Gaunelow's essay bears the title, On Behalf of the Fool, Pro Incipiente. That is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Gaunelow's objection is that this line of reasoning must be wrong because it could be used to prove the existence of a perfect anything, even things we have no reason to believe exist. So he says, imagine a lost island, a perfect island. We don't know where it is, but it's a perfect island, and some of us, some people think it exists. You just plug that into the same argument. One, we have an idea of a perfect island, the island in which none greater can be thought. And we includes the one who denies the existence of such an island, who thinks it's impossible. 
Again, quoting Dr. Peikoff, quote, you can give it modern perfections. It has palm trees and dancing girls. There's palm trees, right? It has palm trees and dancing girls and the whole works, unquote. Actually, laying out the whole works is going to be important. Premise two, an island that exists solely in thought is not as good as an island that exists both in thought and in reality. Therefore, the perfect island cannot exist solely in thought or else it, the island in which none greater can be thought, would, be, would not be the island in which some greater can be thought, and that is a blatant contradiction. Therefore, the perfect island exists in reality as well as in thought. And yet we know that such an island does not exist or at least no one is rationally going to admit that such an island exists on the basis of this argument. Certainly Anselm won't. So the ontological argument has been reduced to absurdity. In fact, I think Gaunelo's objection illustrates, though this was not his intention, that what the ontological argument does is sever identity from existence, or as the medievals would put it, essence from being. But then things go wrong when you plug into the argument something that actually has an identity, right? Like an island. The being than which none greater can be thought, you can kind of get away with that, versus the island than which none greater can be thought. Because what Anselm means by the being than which none greater can be thought is a being with no limitations, which basically means a being without an identity. And he can get away with this or try to he can get, sorry, get away with saying it must exist because it's been stripped of any identity. It is pure, perfect being, pure existence. So, behold, it must exist. But imagining a perfect island and that it must exist is impossible. So the argument isn't valid, says Gaunelo. Now, Anselm responded to this objection, and his response indicates another crucial, related, and all-too-common error. He contrasts the idea of a necessarily existing being, God, and contingent beings like islands. Right? And he claims that his argument, you know, oh, you didn't, you, you misunderstood me, Gaunelo. My argument only works if you're talking about necessarily existing beings. And he writes in his response to Gaunelo, he's responding to Gaunelo, but he's addressing God. He says, quote, Whatever is other than you can be thought not to exist, unquote. And that's what makes it a contingent being, anything but that's not God. But this just underscores the problem, as contingent beings turn out to be all those beings that have an identity, the sort of beings that one actually encounters in the world, available to us through our senses. We can imagine a world without you or me, and in fact, there was a time when we didn't exist and there will be again. And we can even imagine a world without the moon, for instance. It didn't have to exist. One day it won't. But God is a necessarily existing, existing being. Existence is part of his essence. And as a perfect being, the, uh, and as a perfect being, the being than which he's none greater can be, uh, can be thought. It, it has to exist. So that's his response there. Now, I can't get into this in detail. I only have time to mention that objectivism rejects completely the necessary contingent distinction, which has been widespread since the Middle Ages. Uh, Leonard Peikoff has an essay called The, Adla uh, the Analytic-Synthetic Dichotomy, which is included in the Introduction to Objectivism Epistemology, and there's a section of that 
um, called Necessity and Contingency, where he deals with this issue. Speaking metaphysically, all of existence is necessary, including your existence, given all the facts of the reality that preceded it. And the same is true of the moon. To say the moon is a contingent being, because I can imagine a world without the moon, actually you can't, but to say that is pure primacy of consciousness. Another unintended implication of Ganelow's objection related uh, to, to the severing of existence and identity is the absurdity of the idea of the most perfect being, right? period, unspecified. What kind of being? The most perfect being, the one than which none greater can be thought. But this is meaningless outside of any context. One can speak of a perfect meal, a perfect date, a perfect score on the balance beam, right? but a perfect being? No. As Harry Binswanger puts it in The Possible Dream, which was published in the Objectivist Forum in 1981, but I think fairly recently in New Ideal as well, he says, quote, metaphysically a thing, and in this context we might say a being, but a thing is neither perfect nor imperfect. It simply is whatever it is. Apart from the goals, purposes, and values of a living being, there is no basis to rank things as better or worse, much less as perfect or imperfect. Perfection assumes an answer to two questions, to, sorry, to the questions perfect for what, by what standard, unquote. So the notion of a perfect being, unspecified, is as, abs it's as absurd as, well, the concept God. More on that shortly. In fact, even the idea of a perfect island requires specifications to make any sense at all. A perfect island for a honeymoon, a family vacation, a business retreat, a nuclear test site. Perfection is unlikely to be the same in all four contexts. Further, should we assume that every islander has perfect teeth, can read Latin, speak Swahili, score 10 on the balance beam, is immortal? I mean, if you're just allowed to spin these out in your head, just, you know, per perfection is no limitations at all, then uh, you get nowhere. It just collapses into absurdity. Now, I said before that these were unintended implications of Ganelow's objection, that the ontological argument severs existence and identity and endorses an invalid conception of perfection, because Gaunelow agrees with Anselm that God is, God is the being than which none greater can be thought. It's a perfect being. He merely believes that the ontological argument doesn't prove that it exists, and that to deny the existence of God is not to deny what is self-evident. And the same thing turns out to be true for Thomas Aquinas as well, whom I turn to now. In his two major theological works, the Summa Theologia and the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas thinks that there are two errors, sorry, two erroneous views that, um, that held by his fellow Christians, and not heretical Christians, even the good guys, right? Uh, there are two erroneous views which have to be rejected before he can present arguments for the existence of God. Otherwise, they would be superfluous or impossible. Right? And that is that the, that the existence of God is self-evident and that the existence of God cannot be grasped by reason, can only be believed based on faith. 
Now, he includes his discussion, as I indicated, he includes his discussion and rejection of the ontological argument under the idea that existence, the existence of God is self-evident. Now, Aquinas makes a couple of general remarks uh, about or objections to the notion that God's existence is self-evident. And then he, among other things, presents and replies to a couple of uh, versions of the ontological argument. Now, I'm going to be condensing this and extracting from it and presenting what amounts to two good, but not great, uh, two good objections to the ontological argument. First, Aquinas rejects the idea behind premise one, the assumption that we all have the same conception of God or what he thinks comes to the same thing, that we all understand by God the being than which none greater can be thought. And he writes in the Summa Contra Gentiles, quote, in part, this opinion arises from the custom by which from their earliest days people are brought up to hear and to call upon the name of God. Custom, and especially custom in a child, comes to have the force of nature. As a result, what the mind is steeped in from childhood, it clings to very firmly as something known naturally and self-evidently, unquote. I think that's pretty perceptive of, of, of Thomas. So we cannot assume that we all have a clear idea of God and that God is the being than which none greater can be thought. Now, the being than which none greater can be thought would be the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent being of the Bible. Right? Thomas recognizes that, quote, it is not known to all, even including those who admit that God exists, that God is that than which a greater cannot be thought, unquote. Why? Because different people have different conceptions of God, and some people have no clear idea at all. Right? Some ancients thought that the world is God. That's ancient pantheism. And in the Summa Theologia, he says that, for instance, quote, some have believed God to be a body, unquote. It's a likely reference to the Epicureans, unless he had in mind, you know, Zeus and things like that. Only people brought up in the Abrahamic religions have this conception of God. Now, here is the second objection. Now, the relevant texts are, are pretty obscure, but I'm, I'm pretty confident I've got the gist of it. Even if we all had this idea of God, it would not follow that such a being actually exists. Here's what he says in the Summa Contra Gentiles, quote, from the fact that that which is indicated by the name God is conceived by the mind, it does not follow that God exists save only in the intellect. Hence, that than which a greater cannot be thought will likewise not have to exist save only in the intellect, unquote. He makes the same point in the Summa Theologia. Even if we grant that, quote, everyone understands that by this word God is signified something than which nothing greater can be thought, unquote, it follows only that this idea of a necessarily existing being exists in thought. Now, if I understand him correctly, he is here applying a general Aristotelian epistemological principle. You cannot move from a definition or concept or mental content to existence in reality, outside of the mind. Human cognition functioning properly works in the other direction. We observe some things in it that exist, and then there's the formation of concepts, and the, or universals, he would say, 
uh, and the formulation of definitions and further reasoning and demonstration, etc., along roughly Aristotelian lines. So there's no contradiction, he says, for an atheist to claim that God, said to be a being than which none greater can be thought, even to be called a God that necess- a being that necessarily exists, there's no uh, problem for the atheist to claim that such a being does not exist. In proving the actual existence of God, he insists we must move from effects to the cause, right? From our sensory observations of features of the world, movement, causality, order, to a cause of these that transcends or is outside of the world, namely God. Further, given the kind of being God is, we can never know his nature fully. So even if God is essentially the being than which none greater can be thought, and Thomas believes it, it, it is, we don't really have a good idea of what exactly this means, that's for sure. As, he, as, as one contemporary, I mean our contemporary, uh, Thomas philosopher summarizes, quote, we are not going to be able to show that God cannot be thought not to, to be unless we have an understanding of what God is, which we lack, unquote. This is what ties his two objections together. Prior to any philosophical heavy lifting, which itself can only achieve limited results, we have an idea of God only to the extent to which we have been raised to believe in or otherwise have accepted on faith the biblical description of God. Now, it's okay if you believe on faith in God as an absolutely perfect being without limitations. That's great. But to demonstrate the existence of such a being, you must first demonstrate that something answering to the idea of a God exists. For him, that would be the first cause or prime mover. And then you must demonstrate what its nature is, what its attributes are. Incidentally, at this point in his progression, Thomas leaves Aristotle behind and he becomes, I mean, remarkably Neoplatonic and Augustinian. In fact, after proving the existence of God, Thomas goes on to argue that God's essence, what is his essential feature? Being, existence. You all exist, but you have less being than God does. He's pure being. That's his essence. And he makes it clear that he agrees with Anselm. God is the being than which none greater can be thought. Anselm's problem, according to Aquinas, is in thinking that this is self-evident. And Anselm thinks this because he doesn't understand the way human cognition works, the way in which we have to argue for for something's existence or nature, starting from facts based on sense perception. Now, what I take to be roughly the same objection was presented by Johannes Cateris in one of his replies to Descartes' version of the argument. He says, quote, even if it is granted that a supremely perfect being carries the implication of existence in virtue of its very title, it still does not follow that the existence in question is anything actual in the real world. All that follows is that the concept of existence is inseparably linked to the concept of a supreme being. So you cannot infer that the existence of God is anything actual unless you suppose that the supreme being actually exists, for then it will actually contain all perfections, including the perfection of real existence, unquote. Now, I want to return to Aquinas' objection to the first premise. In effect, to his view that we do not have an idea of God as the being than which none greater can be thought. Because although it's sufficient, I think, to refute Anselm, 
it doesn't go nearly far enough, and it couldn't possibly for Aquinas. For there is no clear conception of the being than which none greater can be thought, not as Aquinas thought, because it isn't self-evident and only those who can demonstrate God's nature have an idea of what this refers to, though even that is imperfect given God's perfection and transcendence and our imperfection and embodied uh, state. No, uh, no one uh, has a clear conception of the being than which none greater can be thought because it is by its nature incoherent. Stringing words together to form grammatical sentences or clauses or phrases do not mean, uh, does not mean that it is coherent and has meaning and so can evaluate, we can be, it can be evaluated as true or false. I have a square circle in my pocket. That's kind of a grammatical sentence. Meaningless. It's gibberish. And the same is true with the being than which none greater can be thought. Now, you can extend that to the whole concept of God as a purely perfect being. According to Ayn Rand, the notion of God, I think notion is the best word to, to use here, the notion of God is an invalid concept, and I've included some of this material at the very bottom of the handout. For a concept to be valid, one must, among other things, be able to state what facts of reality gave rise to it and to the cognitive need for it. Invalid concepts, by contrast, as she writes in the Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, are, quote, words that represent attempts to integrate errors, contradictions, or false propositions, such as concepts originating in mysticism, or words without specific definitions, without reference, which can mean anything to anyone, unquote. I mean, take your pick. It all applies to God and the being in which none greater can be thought. In her epistemology workshop, she said that the fact that God is an invalid concept is, quote, precisely one, if not the essential one, of the epistemological objections to the concept God, unquote. And she adds that the notion of God is, quote, not a concept. At best, one could say it is a concept in the sense in which a dramatist uses concepts to create a character. It is an isolation of actual characteristics of man combined with the projection of impossible, irrational characteristics which do not arise from reality, such as omnipotence and omniscience, unquote. But I don't think, and if she thought this, then I would, I would say I disagree with her, I don't think this at best interpretation is applicable here. Doesn't apply to God with a capital G, as I put it, or to Anselm's God as the being than which none greater can be thought. I think it works best uh, with gods of pagan mythology, right, which are much closer to characters created by a dramatist. But this certainly isn't the case for the being than which none greater can be thought or Descartes' supremely perfect being. Recall the way John Galt, put, John Galt puts it, quote, God is that which no human mind can know, they say, and proceed to demand that you consider it knowledge. God is non-man. And then he he continues along those lines, and then he adds, quote, their definitions are not acts of defining, but of wiping out, unquote. Now, I say much more about the incoherence of the notion of God in my lecture, Ayn Rand's Intransigent Atheism. Now, in this sense, Anselm's God, the being than which none greater can be thought, is even worse conceptually than the number than which none greater can be thought. What's that number? I think it's less than Googleplex, but that's not for those of you who are in Dr. Binswanger's class. So what does an atheist 
or an objectivist at least, because this wouldn't be true of all atheists, what does an atheist mean by God? What does he have in mind when he says, God doesn't exist, or I don't believe in God? It is not as Anselm thinks, and what his argument requires. It is not a concession that God is a valid concept, but we just don't think one of them exists. Well, no, we're not conceding that. Rather, what I don't believe in God implies is something like, God is an invalid concept. It has no relationship to reality at all, which of course implies that it doesn't exist. Or simply, that notion that you pretend to believe in called God, is incoherent and makes no sense, and of course it doesn't exist. The same sort of thing is involved in the rejection of most beliefs connected to religion. For instance, in claiming that if an atheist or someone claims that there is no afterlife, that the soul is not immortal, that does not imply that one accepts that those who think otherwise have a clear idea or even a genuine belief in heaven and immortal souls. So the irony of all this, for lack of a better word, is that what you cannot do is imagine God existing at all, right? For God is an invalid concept. He doesn't even exist in thought, if you want to use that language. Now, as I said, I think the objections leveled against the ontological argument by Gaunelow and Aquinas are successful, though they don't go nearly far enough, as I've tried to indicate. But contemporary philosophers have been more impressed by Kant's objection leveled against what is the second premise in my presentation of the argument, that a being uh, that exists solely in thought is not as good as a being that exists in thought and exists in reality. There is so much wrong that is wrong here. And I'll try to get to what's most wrong with it in, in a moment. But there are two things involved, right? The idea that existence is a greater making quality, as it's often put, and the idea that existence is a quality, period. Now, Kant's objection is focused on the latter, which I'll get to shortly. But I first want to say something about the idea that existence is a greater making quality. This has received some attention, not as much, but some attention in the literature. In a word, or five, why should we accept this? Why should we take it for granted that it is obviously true that, the exi that existence is a greater making quality? Which is more perfect, the variola virus that exists only in thought in the minds of scientists, assuming the actual eradication of smallpox, or the variola virus when it exists out there in the world? What about Shakespeare's character Hamlet? Would he be greater if he actually walked the earth? Would the idea of Hitler have been better or worse had such a man only existed in the mind of some 1920s German loser with perverse dreams? Do such comparisons even make any sense at all? And yet, advocates of the ontological argument take this to be obvious. It's just obvious that it's a greater making Quality. Now, Kant's objection was leveled against uh, the idea that existence is a quality, period. The claim that existence is a characteristic or property that contributes to its possessor's perfection is false, on Kant's view, because existence isn't a characteristic or property or attribute at all. 
Uh, this is what he says in the Critique of Pure Reason, quote, when I think a thing through, which, uh, through whichever and however many predicates I like, not the least bit gets added to the thing when I posit in addition that this thing is. For otherwise, what would exist would not be the same as what I had thought in my concept. Now, if I take the subject God, together with all his predicates, among which omnipotence belongs, and say God is, or there is a God, then I add no new predicate to the concept of God, but only posit the subject in itself with all its perfections, unquote. Later, he writes, quote, thus the actual contains nothing more than the mere possible, that is conceptually. A hundred actual dollars do not contain the least bit more than a hundred possible ones, unquote. He even says that the ontological argument, quote, is nothing but a miserable tautology, unquote. That is, what the argument is doing is defining God into existence. Now, in college, I learned the point in this form. Existence is not a predicate. John is tall says something quite different from John is. One tells you something about John, he's tall. The other tells you that, that John, with all his characteristics, like being tall, exists. Now, the point being made is true to this extent. There is no such quality or property called being, realness, or existence that things possess over and above all of their other attributes, nor are there levels or amounts of being that make something more or less perfect. You can, of course, say something, say of something that it exists, it is real, it, it is, etc., but in doing so, you are not attributing some characteristic or quality to the conception of that thing. Again, at least not in the way the ontological argument suggests. I think this is where Ayn Rand's idea that to be is to be something comes in. To be is by its very nature to be something. Right? It is not to possess some attribute called being or existence. To be is to be something, and to be something is to be. Right? And these cannot be separated even in thought. Now, when I teach this to my students, I ask them, imagine a brown bear. And then I say, two of you aren't doing it. Uh, Humor is good because they don't like it when you check their pulse. Um, ask them to imagine a brown bear. Okay? Then I ask them to imagine a polar bear. Okay? That's something different has happened there. And then I ask them, imagine a polar bear existing. And then I think they get the point. It's not like suddenly it becomes more vivid or, you know, he was translucent before. No, it just doesn't add anything to think of it in those terms, not as an idea of the polar bear. Right? The point is not simply that existence isn't an attribute. This is a standard reply to the argument. The point is that the entity is all there is, even when you're merely thinking about an entity. There is no existence apart from the thing. You cannot separate existence from the entity, which is what Anselm wants to do, and what, which is what Aquinas, and, you know, in other contexts, and all the medievals try to do. In fact, you often will read that one of the accomplishments of medieval philosophy is separating being and essence. Disaster. They want to argue that for every entity but God, existence is not a necessary characteristic. But in fact, to use their language, existence is a necessary characteristic of every concept, of everything we think about whenever we think about it. 
even something that doesn't exist. There's no time limitations on this aspect. Now, in fact, in a very important but different sense, existence can qualify things. Horses exist, quaggas no longer exist, unicorns don't exist and never have. Contra Kant, there is a significant difference between 100 actual dollars and 100 possible dollars. But this doesn't make existence a quality, greater making or otherwise, in the way the ontological argument intends. The quagga, if you don't know, is an equine animal, a relative of the zebra, that was hunted to extinction in the 19th century. But it makes no sense to say that one's concept of a horse is better than one's concept of a quagga, because the latter includes extinction, which is greater than one's concept of a unicorn, which is mythological. That's conceptually confused in a big way. Now, you might say that zebras are better than quaggas, but that's only because they managed not to be hunted into extinction. We're doing time, I pretty good. Now, like the objections leveled by Gaunelow and Aquinas, Kant's objection is, I think, successful, but doesn't go nearly far enough, not to mention the fact that it's coming from Kant, which has a context and not a good one. Now, I don't know of anyone who's asked the following question. Actually, I heard this question once from Ankar. Um, but I don't know of anyone else who's asked the question regarding the second premise. What does, or really, we should put it this way, what in the hell does exist in thought but not in reality even mean? Thought is a part of reality. But clearly, Anselm and Descartes et al., can't mean mental reality as opposed to physical reality. I don't like that term, but, you know, or better, you know, conscious existence rather than material existence. Because God is most emphatically not supposed to exist in the physical world, right? To be a material being. So this argument is smuggling in a realm of reality that Anselm, Descartes, and the rest have no right to assume exists. And that, and, and furthermore, makes no sense. Another dimension which lacks dimension, to paraphrase Galt. Why should we think there is anything other than physical phenomena, as well as mental phenomena that are always found intimately connected to or aspects of physical phenomena? Existence exists, period. Now, we do form the concepts physical and matter, for instance, legitimately, because we need to contrast them with phenomena and concepts of consciousness, from the concept of mental, say, or awareness. There are special phenomena that arise within as part of reality, but that cannot be reduced to or explained merely in terms of basic concepts describing matter and its properties. But such concepts are always formed by looking at and thinking about entities that exist in the world, the only world that exists. They are not formed by looking at supernatural entities, transcendent beings, disembodied spirits. Consciousness, awareness, etc., are always inextricably connected to bodies, and they are always of what exists. So one can, though not ideally, I think, one can speak of what exists in, in the thought and what exists in reality in the sense of the world, but there is no justification, having made the distinction between the physical and the mental, say, 
for arbitrarily contrasting what exists in thought and what exists in a reality that transcends the world that exists. So if we ever legitimately contrast what exists in thought and what, with what exists both in thought and in reality, we must be referring to something that exists in the world. For instance, a horse, which exists in reality and in thought, as opposed to a unicorn, which has never existed in reality, or a quagga, which is extinct. But even here, we are not talking about levels of being or levels of perfection. Now, it occurred to me in working on this lecture and having to come up with some kind of conclusion, it occurred to me that there are two senses in which we might say, though I would never seriously put it this way, in which we might say that existence in reality is greater than existence in thought. At the level of metaphysics, you can say that existence has primacy over consciousness that the primacy of existence is true and the primacy of, of consciousness is false. And so in a sense, you could say existence is greater than consciousness. I don't think you should really put it that way, but I'm responding to this ontological argument. Existence has primacy, certainly. And at the level of values, you could say with Kira Argunova, we the living, right, that to imagine a heaven and to demand it, to attempt to achieve it here on earth, is greater than to imagine a heaven and to merely to dream of it or to put all of your values in that heaven that you can't find here on earth. But then the ontological argument itself fails on both counts here. It is an argument, it is a massive rationalization created to support a philosophy that gives primacy to consciousness over existence and to a heaven that cannot even be dreamed of over the achievement of real values here on earth. And I think I'll end on that note. Thank you. Yes. What are the premises that have made this argument seem plausible to so many philosophers over such a long time? I think, um, well, for the Christian philosophers, the, the premise is um, they want an argument that's a slam dunk, and some of them have found this really intriguing. Uh, and I think what, what happens with every generation, for example, there's a number of what are called modal versions of the ontological argument that in the 20th century, they start to speak in terms of possible worlds. And, you know, can we imagine a perfect being not existing in any possible world? Well, uh, if, if, if the existence of God is at least a possibility, then if it exists in one possible world, it must exist in all of them. You know, you have these kinds of, uh, of premises. And, and, but I think more fundamentally, philosophy is so often divorced from reality. It's just playing around with concepts. It's all, and this is where I think... Um, Christianity has taught the West how to think. Even the most atheist, modern philosopher, the idea that you can propose an hypothesis, you can put words together and imagine a kind of world, and then that has a certain validity, and we can talk about it, and you know, these are thought experiments, and that's all it is. It's so divorced from reality. So the ontological argument is not so preposterous 
in that context. And so I think even for atheists, they have, they find this, it's, there's something fascinating and interesting about it when it really is just pretty obvious rationalization. I mean, it makes the cosmological argument look really clean by comparison. Yes. Thanks, Robert. Anyone ever tell you you look and sound like a Baptist preacher up there? <laughs> and it's kind of mad. Go to hell! <laughs> I condemn thee! <laughs> no. Uh, I've not heard that one. <laughs> so, um, Is that your implicit way of saying, um, yeah, you sound like that? So, <laughs> so, um, so I, I became an atheist at the age of seven, at the horror of my very religious parents and peers. And, and for me, like under the most basic commitment to evidence, like this conclusion was nearly self-evident at that time. Um, and I was only ever really motivated to recant and come to Jesus um, out of social pressure that would have required me to cut out my eyes and lobotomize my brain. I, I felt this pressure until I picked up my first Ayn Rand book at age 20 and no longer felt alone. We spend a lot of time disproving the abstract arguments for a supernatural being, but by the time an adult can hear your argument, they can't accept it because they've already sacrificed their reason and convictions. So my question is, how do we do more to protect and support vulnerable young minds before they are too far gone to accept rational arguments that you've presented here? Well, what age did you read Atlas Shrugged? 20. That's a young mind. And it wasn't, I can't imagine it had the impact because you concluded I'm not alone. There was something about that novel that made all of this look like nonsense. And so that's really the answer to your question. Get these novels into people's hands. And I imagine if you took a poll here, you know, what age did people um, find Ayn Rand? And a lot of us were raised uh, religious of one form or another. Um, that's the answer. I mean, there, there is no... Um, trick beyond that, I mean, beyond philosophical education and cultural education, because Aquinas is right in a way that there's something really difficult. If you have it drilled into you at a young age, the idea of a world without God, that is, is, is unthinkable, right? You might disagree with your parents, you think they're too strict in their Catholicism or something, but to reject all that, you need some um, a howitzer, you know, intellectual to blow it all away, and that's, well... In your own life, right? Atlas, Atlas Shrugged did that. Um, and it's, you're not the only one. Right? Uh-oh. <laughs> no, this is, this is good. Uh, oh, thank you. I, I like the talk. Uh, I didn't know the full history. Um, but, you know, I have this argument. I think I've, I've mentioned it to you. And I, is it correct um, that the fallacy is that it, it doesn't realize that to imagine a being is to imagine that it exists. So you, you say, imagine the polar bear. That's where you went, right? Now imagine that it exists. But you've already imagined that it exists, right? Yeah, I should have been more explicit. That's the point I was trying to make. And I should say, I mean, I've kind of, um, first of all, I never heard of Quagga until I took um, a phone course with Harry Benjwanger years ago and that it came up. Estelle reminded me of that because I thought I was inventing something new, but it was back there in my subconscious. The <laughs> I other said thing, it would be. That yeah. was the point of the course. Someday you'll remember. <laughs> the Quagga. But the other thing is, I'll, I'll mention, um, 
Dr. Benzwanger once, and I forget what the context was, but you said, here's your refutation. Here's my impersonation of Napoleon. Do you remember that? No. I, I do. He said, here's my impersonation of Napoleon. Here's my impersonation of Napoleon existing. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, that's the same point with the polar bear. But it's, it's the right one, so yeah. Uh, okay, thank you. Well, thank you. Um, All right. Yes. Uh, thank you, sir. That was really um, uh, thought-provoking. So my question is more like, I have a two-part question. Uh, why should we look more into the, uh, the ontolo ontological point of view that you took uh, rather than uh, the intelligent design uh, theory uh, as suggested or as inferred by um, the greatest scientist of the world, uh, Albert Einstein. Like Albert Einstein once mentioned, mentioned that science cannot prove or disprove the existence of God. And he also said a very simple statement that, you know, his form of agnosticism is more of a personal thing. And that philosophers who came after that also said that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the very idea that uh, Albert Einstein took, whereby faith or the existence of God is, a, is more of a personal thing than of uh, imposing it on anyone else. So the two questions are, why should we go take a, why should we not take that intelligent design point of view? And the second thing is, why should we not consider faith and God as an extremely personal thing and not anything beyond that? Um, well, first of all, one of the questions is, why did I choose to talk on this topic rather than the other one? Well, I, was more, I was ready to talk about the ontological argument and I wasn't quite ready to talk about the teleological argument. Um, it sounds like a bit of an argument, an appeal to authority there. You're mentioning um, Einstein. All I can say is Einstein was brilliant, and he missed the bus on this argument. Um, now, um, I think the idea we can't prove or disprove, if I were to say, look, we can't prove or disprove that back home, I have a square circle that grants wishes. You have arguments against it. I have arguments. I th that's what the concept of God is. If you really look at it, it's all like that. And people don't, they think, they picture a human being with long, you know, like Gandalf in the sky or something like that. But that's not what God is. And I think, I, I, it is impossible to believe in a God. It can't, you can't, you can't really genuinely have a belief in the afterlife. You can have hope in it or something like that. So now the second point that really is a distraction, I think, because you can do that with a lot, you know, don't I have a right to my opinion? Well, yes, that's a political point. You have a right to your opinion, but that has nothing to do with whether you're, you know, if you're a Marxist or something, I, I'm going to have you know, problems with your opinion. And for objectivists to be atheist and to, you know, argue for that position, although not militantly, um, that's not a, a kind of implicit, uh, you know, hope that there'll be a day, you know, where the, the government will... will um, um, will uh, squash uh, theists or something like that. And you can't, I think a lot of people believe this is a personal view of mine, but if it's, if, if it's my personal feeling that it's important for me to have a God, um, and then I think you, you need to check your premises. You have to take a step back and ask, why do I find it's really important to me uh, to think that there's this being watching over me or, or what have you? So I would leave it at that. All right, thank you, sir. Descartes has uh, another proof, uh, attempted proof of the existence of God that's somewhat similar to this one. I, I think 
don't remember it exactly, but I know it involves infinity and imagination. It's, it's, the, it's sometimes called the trademark existence of, of God because Descartes in a problem. He paints himself into a corner. Nothing, he can't be sure that anything exists except himself, and that's not counting his body. But how does he get out of that? Well, if I can prove the existence of God. So he has a couple of arguments. One's the ontological argument because you see it doesn't require sensory observation of a world. What senses? What world? So he, um, but somehow. Uh, the other one is the trademark argument. And basically, I have an idea of infinity. How could a puny little finite being like me have this, this idea? It must be innate. It must have been planted by me by the kind of being that could put infinity in a finite being. What kind of being? The God of the Bible. So it's not even God, you know, it's, it's, it's that God. And that's, um, yeah, so that's the argument. But it's, it's, it's sometimes classified, it's not taken very seriously, but it's sometimes classified as a kind of cosmological argument because you're trying to argue for so, something in the world, how did it get there? But it's, it's just a strange argument. Some classified as a version of the ontological argument. I'm, yeah, but that, that's the basic argument. Where could infinity come from? Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. No, no, we, uh, we have one more. Hold your applause. <laughs> I, I, <clears throat> I just want to know how important you think it is to argue with people who are committed to an existence of God. Can you be friends and work together on other things that make sense? Or are we to stand our ground and say? Well, there, there's a big context there. If I have a coworker who I get along with fine, I'm not going to you know, snub them or, or be rude or, or, or um, obnoxious just because they believe in God. Now, if they wanted to enter into a conversation, I think I could politely talk about why. Because in a context like that, the, the world we're in, it's the atheist who's going to be looked upon as a little weird. And um, you can explain yourself, and I think you can do that politely. Uh, the question of, of, of sanction would come up where you're working on, on some, you're not just co-workers or the next door neighbor who you get along with fine and there's a certain limited relationship there. It's when you get, you know, um, you're an objectivist and, not, not you, but you know, one is an objectivist and falls in love with someone who's religious or something, or you're, uh, you're, you're um, active in some political uh, campaign and you want to know if it's okay to work on some ad hoc goal with, with someone who happens to be religious. That, there's, there's so much of a context there. Is the person um, that you, you, know, you have political, certain limited political goals in common with, is that person a religious conservative? Uh, you know, are they, uh, when they're not working with you, are they mounting the barricades in, you know, uh, to get rid of abortion or something? Um, so you're yeah. saying it's contextual. Very much so, and I think. You could adjust um, your behavior to the context so that you don't have to compromise your principles. I would think so. Um, think in, in, in the, and in the marriage context, in the falling in love context, I think you'd want to sort that out before you got married. That's, oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.